0: The information McLaughlin obtained from Lieutenant Hill quickly spread amongst us and we now began to see more clearly the horrors of our situation and the men to murmur at not being permitted to turn and stand at bay cursing the French and swearing they would rather die 10,000 deaths with their rifles in their hands in opposition than endure the present toil. We were in the rear at this time and following that part of the army which made for Vigo whilst the other portion of the British, being on the main road to Corunia, were at this moment closely pursued and harassed by the enemy, as I should judge from the continued thunder of their cannon and rattle of their musketry. Crawford seemed to sniff the sound of battle from afar with peculiar feelings. He halted us for a few minutes occasionally, when the distant clamour became more distinct and his face turned towards the sound and seemed to light up and become less stern. It was then, indeed, that every poor fellow clutched his weapon more firmly and wished for a sight of the enemy. Before long, they had their wish. The enemy's cavalry were on our skirts that night, and as we rushed out of a small village, the name of which I cannot now recollect, we turned to bay. Behind broken-down carts and tumbrils, huge trunks of trees and everything we could scrape together, the rifles lay and blazed away at the advancing cavalry whilst the inhabitants suddenly aroused from their beds to behold their village, almost on fire with our continued discharges, and nearly distracted with the sound, ran from their houses, crying, Viva la inglesa, and viva la franca, in a breath, men, women, and children, flying to the open country, in their alarm. We passed the night, thus engaged, holding our own as well as we could, Together with the 43rd Light Infantry, the 52nd, and a portion of the German Legion, part of the 10th Hussars and the 15th Dragoons. Towards morning, we moved down towards a small bridge, still followed by the enemy, whom, however, we had sharply galled, and obliged to be more wary in their efforts. The rain was pouring down in torrents on this morning, I recollect and we remained many hours with our arms ported, standing in this manner and staring the French cavalry in the face, the water actually running out of the muzzles of our rifles. I do not recollect seeing a single regiment of infantry amongst the French force on this day. It seemed to me a tremendous body of cavalry, some said nine or ten thousand strong, commanded, as I heard, by General Lefebvre. Whilst we stood thus face to face, I remember the horsemen of the enemy sat watching us very intently, as if waiting for a favourable moment to dash upon us like beasts of prey, and every now and then their trumpets would ring out a lively strain of music, as if to encourage them. As the night drew on, our cavalry moved a little to the front, together with several field pieces, and succeeded in crossing the bridge, after which we also advanced and threw ourselves into some hilly ground on either side of the road, whilst the 43rd and 52nd lay behind some carts, trunks of trees and other materials with which they had formed a barrier. General Crawford was standing behind this barricade when he ordered the rifles to push still further in front and conceal themselves amongst the hills on either side. A man named Higgins was my front rank man at this moment. Aris, said he. Let you and I gain the very top of the mountain and look at what those French thieves are at on the other side. My feet were sore and bleeding, and the sinews of my legs ached as if they would burst, but I resolved to accompany him. In our wearied state, the task was not easy. By the aid of Higgins, a tall and powerful fellow, I managed to reach the top of the mountain, where we placed ourselves in a sort of gully or ditch and looked over to the enemy's side, concealing ourselves by lying flat in the ditch, as we did so. Thus, in favourable situations, like cats watching for their prey, were the rest of the rifles lying perdu upon the hills that night. The mountain, we found, was neither so steep nor so precipitous on the enemy's side. The ascent, on the contrary, was so easy... The one or two of the vedettes of the French cavalry were prowling about very near where we lay, as we had received orders not to make more noise than we could help, not even to speak to each other, except in whispers. Although one of these horsemen approached close to where I lay, I forbore to fire upon him. At length, he stopped so near me that I saw it was almost impossible he could avoid discovering that the rifles were in such close proximity to his person. He gazed cautiously along the ridge, Took off his helmet and wiped his face, as he appeared to meditate upon the propriety of crossing the ditch in which we lay, when suddenly our eyes met, and in an instant he plucked a pistol from his holster, fired it in my face, and wheeling his horse, plunged down the hillside. For the moment, I thought I was hit, as the ball grazed my neck and stuck fast in my knapsack, where I found it, when, many days afterwards, I unpacked my kit on shipboard. About a quarter of an hour after this, as we still lay in the gully, I heard some person clambering up behind us, and upon turning quickly round, I found it was General Crawford. The General was wrapped in his greatcoat, and like ourselves, had been for many hours drenched to the skin, for the rain was coming down furiously. He carried in his hand a canteen full of rum, and a small cup, with which he was occasionally endeavouring to refresh some of the men. He offered me a drink, as he passed, and then proceeded onwards along the ridge. After he had emptied his canteen, he came past us again, and himself gave us instructions as to our future proceedings. "'When all is ready, rifleman,' said he, "'you will immediately get the word, and pass over the bridge. Be, Be careful, and mind what you are about.' Accordingly, a short time after he had left us, we were ordered to descend the mountainside in single file, and having gained the road, were quickly upon the bridge. Meanwhile, the staff corps had been hard at work mining the very centre of the structure, which was filled with gunpowder, a narrow plank being all the aid we had by which to pass over. For my own part, I was now so utterly helpless that I felt as if all was nearly up with me, and that... If I could steady myself so as to reach the further end of the plank, it would be all I should be able to accomplish. However, we managed all of us to reach the other side in safety, when almost immediately afterwards, the bridge blew up with a tremendous report, and a house at its extremity burst into flames. What with the concussion of the explosion, and the tremulous state of my limbs, I was thrown to the ground, and lay flat upon my face for some time, almost in a state of insensibility. After a while I somewhat recovered, but it was not without extreme difficulty and many times falling again that I succeeded in regaining the column. Soon after I had done so, we reached Benevento and immediately took refuge in a convent. Already three parts of it were filled with other troops among which were mingled with the 10th Azars, the German Legion and the 15th Dragoons, the horses of these regiment, standing as close as they could stand, with the men dismounted between each horse and the animals' heads to the walls of the building, and all in readiness to turn out on the instant. Liquor was handed to us by the Dragoons, but having had nothing for some time to eat, many of our men became sick instead of receiving any benefit from it. Before we had been in the convent, as long a time as I would have been describing our arrival. Every man of us was down on the floor, and well nigh asleep, and before we had slept half an hour, we were again aroused from our slumbers by the clatter of the horses, the clash of the men's sabres, and their shouts for us to clear the way. The enemy! The enemy! I heard shouted out. Clear the way, rifles! Up, boys, and clear the way! In short, the dragoons hardly gave us time to rise, before they were leading their horses amongst us and getting out of the convent as fast as they could scamper, whilst we ourselves were not long in following their example. As we did so, we discovered that the French cavalry, having found the bridge blown up, had dashed into the stream and succeeded in crossing. Our cavalry, however, quickly formed and charged them in gallant style. The shock of that encounter was tremendous to look upon, and we stood for some time in ranked, watching the combatants. The horsemen had it all to themselves, our dragoons fought like tigers, and, although greatly overmatched, drove the enemy back like a torrent, and forced them again into the river. A private of the Tenth hussars his name, I think, was Franklin, dashed into the stream after their general, assailed him, sword in hand, in the water, captured, and brought him a prisoner on shore again, if I remember rightly, Franklin, or whatever else was his name, was made a sergeant on the spot. The French general was delivered into our custody on that occasion, and we cheered the tenth men heartily as we received him. After the enemy had received his cheque from our cavalry, and which considerably damped their ardour, making them a trifle more shy of us for a while, we pushed onwards on our painful march, I remember marching close beside the French general during some part of this day and observing his chap-fallen and dejected look as he rode along in the midst of the green jackets. Being constantly in rear of the main body, the scenes of distress and misery I witnessed were dreadful to contemplate, particularly amongst the women and children who were lagging and falling behind, their husbands and fathers being in the main body in our front. We now came to the edge of a deep ravine the descent so steep and precipitous that it was impossible to keep our feet in getting down, and we were sometimes obliged to sit and slide along on our backs, whilst before us rose a ridge of mountains, quite as steep and difficult of ascent. There was, however, no pause in our exertion, but, slinging our rifles round our necks, down the hill we went, whilst mules with their baggage on their backs, wearied and urged beyond their strength, were seen rolling from top to bottom, many of them breaking their necks with the fall, and the baggage crushed, smashed and abandoned. I remember as I descended this hill, remarking the extraordinary sight afforded by the thousands of our redcoats, who were creeping like snails and toiling up the ascent before us, their muskets slung round their necks and clambering with both hands as they hauled themselves up, As soon as we ourselves had gained the ascent, we were halted for a few minutes, in order to give us breath for another effort, and then onwards we moved again. It is impossible for me to keep any account of time in this description, as I never exactly knew how many days and nights we marched, but I well know we kept on for many successive days and nights without rest or much in the way of food. The long day found us still pushing on, and the night caused us no halt After leaving the hills I have mentioned, and which I heard at the time were called the mountains of Galatia, as we passed through a village, our major resolved to try and get us something in the shape of a better meal than we had been able hitherto to procure. He accordingly dispatched a small party, who were somewhat more fresh than their comrades, to try and procure something from the houses around, and they accordingly purchased, shot and bayoneted, somewhere about a score of pigs, which we lugged along with us to a convent just without the town, and, halting for a short time, proceeded to cook them. The men, however, were too hungry to wait whilst they were being properly dressed and served out. After this hasty meal, we again pushed on, still cursing the enemy for not again showing themselves that we might revenge some of their present miseries upon their heads. Why don't they come on like men, they cried, whilst we've the strength left in us to fight them. We were now up on the mountains. The night was bitter cold, and the snow falling fast. As day broke, I remember hearing Lieutenant Hill say to another officer, who, by the way, afterwards sank down and died, This is New Year's Day, and I think if we live to see another, we shall not easily forget it. The mountains were now becoming more wild-looking and steep. As we proceeded, Whilst those few huts we occasionally passed seemed so utterly forlorn and wretched looking, it appeared quite a wonder how human beings could live in so desolate a home. After the snow commenced, the hills became so slippery, being in many parts covered with ice, that several of our men frequently slipped and fell, and being unable to rise, gave themselves up to despair and died. There was now no endeavour to assist one another after a fall. It was everyone for himself and God for us all. The enemy, I should think, were at this time frequently close upon our trail and I thought at times I heard their trumpets come down the wind as we marched. Towards the dusk of the evening of this day, I remember passing a man and woman lying clasped in each other's arms and dying in the snow. I knew them both, but it was impossible to help them. They belonged to the rifles and were man and wife. The man's name was Joseph Sitdown. During this retreat, as he had not been in good health previously, himself and wife had been allowed to get on in the best way they could in the front. They had, however, now given in, and the last we ever saw of poor Sitdown and his wife was on that night, lying perishing in each other's arms in the snow. Many trivial things which happened during the retreat to Corunia and which on any other occasion might have entirely passed from my memory, have been, as it were, branded into my remembrance, and I recollect the most trifling incidents which occurred from day to day during that march. I remember, amongst other matters, that we were joined, if I may so term it, by a young recruit, when such an addition was anything but wished for during the disasters of the hour. One of the men's wives, who was struggling forward in the ranks with us, presenting a ghastly picture of illness, misery and fatigue, being very large in the family way, towards evening, steps from amongst the crowd and lay herself down amidst the snow, a little out of the main road. Her husband remained with her, and I heard one or two hasty observations amongst our men that they had taken possession of their last resting place. The enemy were, indeed, not far behind at this time. The night was coming down, and their chance seemed in truth but a bad one. To remain behind the column of march in such weather was to perish, and we accordingly soon forgot all about them. To my surprise, however, I, some little time afterwards, being myself then in the rear of our party, again saw the woman. She was hurrying, with her husband after us, and in her arms she carried the babe she had just given birth to. Her husband and herself between them, managed to carry that infant to the end of the retreat, where we embarked. God tempers the wind, it is said, to the shorn lamp, and many years afterwards I saw that boy, a strong and healthy lad. The woman's name was Maguire, a sturdy and hardy Irish woman, and lucky was it for herself and babe that she was so, as that night of cold and sleet was in itself sufficient to try the constitution of most females. I lost sight of her, I recollect, on this night, when the darkness came upon us, but with the dawn, to my surprise, she was still amongst us. The shoes and boots of our party were now mostly either destroyed or useless to us, from foul roads and long miles, and many of the men were entirely barefooted, with knapsacks and accoutrements altogether in a dilapidated state. The officers were also, for the most part, in as miserable a plight, They were pallid, wayworn, their feet bleeding and their faces overgrown with beards of many days' growth. What a contrast did our core display, even at this period of the retreat, to my remembrance of them on the morning, their dashing appearance captivated my fancy in Ireland. Many of the poor fellows, now near sinking with fatigue, reeled as if in a state of drunkenness, and altogether I thought we looked the ghosts of our former selves. Still, we held on resolutely, Our officers behaved nobly, and Crawford was not to be daunted by long miles, fatigue, or fine weather. Many a man in that retreat caught courage from his stern eye and gallant bearing. Indeed, I do not think the world ever saw a more perfect soldier than General Crawford. It might be on the night following the disaster I have just narrated, that we came to a halt for about a couple of hours in a small village, and together with several others, I sought shelter in the stable of a sort of farmhouse, the first roof I saw near. Burrow's Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here, however, we found nothing to refresh ourselves with by way of food, but some raw potatoes lying in a heap in one of the empty stalls, and which, for want of better rations, we made a meal of, before we threw ourselves down upon the stones with which the place was paved. Meanwhile, others of the men, together with two or three of our officers, more fortunate than ourselves, had possession of the rooms of the adjoining building, where they found at least a fire to warm themselves. Lieutenant Hill had a black servant with him in this retreat, a youth he had bought with him from Montevideo, where, I heard, the rifles had found him tied to a gun they had captured there. This lad came and aroused me as I lay in the mule stable and desired me to speak with his master in the adjoining room. I found the lieutenant seated in a chair by the fire when I entered. He was one of the few amongst us who rejoiced in the possession of a tolerably decent pair of boots and he had sent for me to put a few stitches in them in order to keep them from flying to pieces. I was so utterly wearied that I at first refused to have anything to do with them but the officer, taking off his boots, insisted upon me getting out my wax threads and mending them, and himself and servant, thrusting me into the chair he rose from, put the boots into my hands, got out my shoemaking implements, and held me up as I attempted to cobble up the boots. It was, however, in vain that I tried to do my best towards the lieutenant's boots. After a few stitches, I fell asleep as I worked, the awl and wax ends falling to the ground, I remember there were two other officers present at the time, Lieutenants Molloy and Keppel, the latter of whom soon afterwards fell dead from fatigue during the retreat. At the present time, however, they all saw it was in vain to urge me to mend Lieutenant Hill's boots. He therefore put them on again and with a woeful face and a curse, dismissed me to my repose. Our rest was not, however, of long duration, The French were upon our trail and before long we were up and hurrying onwards again. As the day began to dawn we passed through another village a long, straggling place. The houses were all closed at this early hour and the inhabitants mostly buried in sleep and I dare say unconscious of the armed thousands who were pouring through their silent streets when about a couple of miles from this village Crawford again halted us for about a quarter of an hour. It appeared to me That, with returning daylight, he wished to have a good look at us this morning, for he mingled amongst the men as we stood leaning upon our rifles, gazing earnestly in our faces as he passed, in order to judge of our plight by our countenances. He himself appeared anxious, but full of fire and spirit, occasionally giving directions to the different officers, and then speaking words of encouragement to the men. It is my pride now to remember that General Crawford seldom omitted a word in passing to myself. On this occasion, he stopped in the midst and addressed a few words to me, and glancing down at my feet, observed, What? No shoes, Harris? I say, eh? None, sir, I replied. They have been gone many days back. He smiled, and passing on, spoke to another man, and so on through the whole body. Crawford was... I remember terribly severe during this retreat if you caught anything like pilfering amongst the men as we stood however during this short halt a very tempting turnip field was close on the side of us and several of the men were so ravenous that although he was in our very ranks they stepped into the field and helped themselves to the turnips devouring them like famishing wolves. He either did not or would not observe the delinquency this time, and soon afterwards gave the word, and we moved on once more. About this period I remember another sight, which I shall not, to my dying day, forget, and it causes me a sore heart, even now, as I remember it. Soon after our halt beside the turnip field, the screams of a child near me caught my ear, and drew my attention to one of our women, who was endeavouring to drag along a little boy of about seven or eight years of age. The poor child was apparently completely exhausted, and his legs failing under him. The mother had occasionally, up to this time, been assisted by some of the men, taking it in turn to help the little fellow on, but now all further appeal was vain. No man had more strength than was necessary for the support of his own carcass, and the mother could no longer raise the child in her arms, as a reeling pace too plainly showed. Still, however, she continued to drag the child along with her. It was a pitiable sight, and wonderful to behold the efforts the poor woman made to keep the boy amongst us. At last, the little fellow had not even strength to cry, but with mouth wide open, stumbled onwards until both sank down to rise no more. The poor woman herself had, for some time, looked a moving corpse, and when the shades of evening came down, they were far behind amongst the dead or dying in the road. This was not the only scene of the sort I witnessed amongst the women and children during that retreat. Poor creatures. They must have bitterly regretted not having accepted the offer which was made to them to embark at Lisbon for England, instead of accompanying their husbands into Spain. The women, however, I have often observed are most persevering in such cases and are not to be persuaded that their presence is often a source of anxiety to the corps they belong to. I do not think I ever admired any man who wore the British uniform more than I did General Crawford. I could fill a book with descriptions of him for I frequently had my eye upon him in the hurry of action. It was gratifying to me too to think he did not altogether think ill of me since he has often addressed me kindly when from adverse circumstances you might have thought he had scarcely spirits to cheer at the men under him the rifle's liked him but they also feared him for he could be terrible when insubordination showed itself in the ranks you think because you are riflemen you may do whatever you think proper said he one day to the miserable and savage-looking crew around him in the retreat to korunya but i'll teach you the difference before i have done with you i remember one evening During the retreat, he detected two men straying away from the main body. It was in the early stage of that disastrous flight, and Crawford knew well that he must do his utmost to keep the division together. He halted the brigade, with a voice of thunder, ordered a drumhead court-martial on the instant, and they were sentenced to a hundred apiece. Whilst this hasty trial was taking place, Crawford, dismounting from his horse, stood in the midst, looking stern and angry, As a worried bulldog, he did not like retreating at all, that man. The three men nearest him, as he stood, were Jagger, Dan Howans and myself. All were worn, dejected and savage, though nothing to what we were after a few days more of the retreat. The whole brigade were in a grumbling and discontented mood and Crawford, doubtless, felt ill-pleased with the aspect of affairs altogether. Damn his eyes, muttered Howans. He had much better try to get us something to eat and drink than harass us in this way. No sooner had Howans disburdened his conscience of this growl than Crawford, who had overheard it, turning sharply around, seized the rifle out of Jagger's hand and felled him to the earth with a butt end. It was not who I spoke, said Jagger, getting up and shaking his head. You shouldn't knock me about." I heard you, sir, said Crawford, and I will bring you also to a court-martial. ''I am the man who spoke,'' said Howans. ''Ben Yager never said a word.'' ''Very well,'' returned Crawford. ''Then I'll try you, sir.'' And accordingly, when the other affair was disposed of, Howans's case came on. By the time the three men were tried, it was too dark to inflict the punishment. Howans, however, had got the compliment of three hundred promised to him, so Crawford gave the word to the brigade to move on. He marched all that night on foot... And when the morning dawned, I remember that, like the rest of us, his hair, beard and eyebrows were covered with the frost, as if he had grown with white with age. We were, indeed, all of us in the same condition. Scarcely had I time to notice the appearance of morning before the general once more called a halt. We were then on the hills, ordering a square to be formed. He spoke to the brigade, as well as I can remember, in these words... "'after having ordered the three before-named men of the 95th "'to be brought into the square. "'Although,' said he, "'I should obtain the goodwill "'neither of the officers nor the men of the brigade here "'by so doing. "'I am resolved to punish these three men "'according to the sentence awarded, "'even though the French are at our heels. "'Begin with Daniel Howans.' "'This was indeed no time to be lax in discipline.' And the general knew it. The men, as I said, were some of them becoming careless and ruffianly in their demeanour, whilst others, again, I saw with the tears falling down their cheeks from the agony of their bleeding feet, and many were ill with dysentery from the effects of the bad food that they had got hold of and devoured on the road. Our knapsacks, too, were a bitter enemy on this prolonged march. Many a man died, I am convinced, who would have borne it well to the end of the retreat, but for the infernal load we carried on our backs. My own knapsack was my bitterest enemy. I felt it press me to the earth almost at times, and more than once felt as if I should die under its deadly embrace. The knapsacks, in my opinion, should have been abandoned at the very commencement of the retrograde movement, as it would have been better to have lost them altogether if, by such loss, we could have saved the poor fellows, who, as it was, died strapped to them on the road. There was some difficulty in finding a place to tie Howans up, as the Light Brigade carried no halberds. However, they led him to a slender ash tree, which grew near at hand. "'Don't trouble yourselves about tying me up,' said Howans, folding his arms. "'I'll take my punishment like a man.' He did so without a murmur, receiving the whole 300. His wife, who was present with us, I remember, was a strong, hardy Irish woman. When it was over, she stepped up and covered Howans with his grey greatcoat. The general then gave the word to move on. I rather think he knew the enemy was too near to punish the other two delinquents just then, so we proceeded out of the cornfield in which we had been halted and toiled away upon the hills once more, Howans's wife carrying the jacket, knapsack and pouch, which the lacerated state of the man's back would not permit him to bear. He could not have been, I should think, more than an hour after the punishment had been inflicted upon Howans, when the general again gave the word for the brigade to halt, and once more formed them into a square. We had begun to suppose that he intended to allow the other two delinquents to escape, under the present difficulties and hardships of the retreat. He was not, however, one of the forgetful sort, when the discipline of the army under him made severity necessary. Bring out the two other men of the 95th, said he who were tried last night. The men were brought forth accordingly, and their lieutenant colonel, Hamilton Wade, at the same time stepped forth. He walked up to the general, and lowering his sword, requesting that he should forgive these men, as they were both of them good soldiers and had fought in all battles of Portugal. "'I order you,' sir,' said the general, "'to do your duty. These men shall be punished.' The lieutenant colonel, therefore, recovering his sword turned about and fell back to the front of the rifles one of the men upon this i think it was armstrong immediately began to unstrap his knapsack and prepare for the lash crawford had turned about meanwhile and walked up to one side of the square apparently he suddenly relented a little and again turning sharp round returned towards the two prisoners stop said he in consequence of the intercession of your lieutenant colonel I will allow you thus much. You shall draw lots and the winner shall escape but one of the two I am determined to make an example of. The square was formed in a stubble field and the sergeant major of the rifles immediately stooping down plucked up two straws and the men coming forward drew. I cannot be quite certain but I think it was Armstrong who drew the longest straw and when the safety of his hide and his fellow game master was in quick time tied to a tree and the punishment commenced. A hundred was the sentence, but when the bugler counted 75, the general granted him a further indulgence, and ordered him to be taken down, and to join his company. The general, calling for his horse, now mounted for the first time for many hours, for he had not ridden all night, not indeed, since the drumhead court-martial had taken place. Before he put the brigade in motion again, he gave us another short specimen of his eloquence, pretty much I remember, after this style. I give you all notice, said he, that I will halt the brigade again the very first moment I perceive any man disobeying my orders, and try him by court-martial on the spot. He then gave us the word, and we resumed our march. Many who read this, especially in these peaceful times, may suppose this was a cruel and unnecessary severity under the dreadful and harassing circumstances of that retreat, but I, who was there, and was besides a common soldier of the very regiment to which these men belonged, say it was quite necessary. No man but one formed of stuff like General Crawford could have saved the brigade from perishing altogether, and, if he flogged too, he saved hundreds from death by his management. I detest the sight of the lash, but I am convinced the British Army can never go on without it. Late events have taught us the necessity of such measures. It was perhaps a couple of days after this had taken place that we came to a river. It was tolerably wide, but not very deep, which was just as well for us, for it had been deep as the dark regions. We must have somehow or other got through. The Avenger was behind us, and Crawford was along with us, and the two together kept us moving, whatever was in the road. Accordingly, into the stream went the light brigade, and Crawford, as busy as a shepherd with his flock, riding in and out of the water to keep his wearied band from being drowned as they crossed over. Presently he spied an officer who, to save himself from being wet through, I suppose, and wearing a damp pair of breeches for the remainder of the day, had mounted on the back of one of his men. The sight of such a piece of effeminacy was enough to raise the collar of the general, and in a very short time he was plunging and splashing through the water after them both. Put him down, sir, put him down. I desire you to put that officer down instantly. And the soldier, in an instant, I dare say nothing, loth, dropping his burden like a hot potato into the stream, continued his progress through. Return back, sir, said Crawford to the officer, and go through the water like the others. I will not allow my officers to ride upon the men's backs through the rivers. All must take their share alike here. Wearied as we were, this affair caused all who saw it to shout almost with laughter and was never forgotten by those who survived the retreat. General Crawford was indeed one of the few men who was apparently created for command during such dreadful scenes as we were familiar with in this retreat. He seemed an iron man, nothing daunted him, nothing turned him from his purpose. War was his very element and toil and danger seemed to call forth only an increasing determination to surmount them. I was sometimes amused with his appearance and that of the men around us, for, the rifles being always at his heels, he seemed to think them his familiars. If he stopped his horse and halted to deliver one of his stern reprimands, you would see half a dozen lean, unshaven, shoeless and savage riflemen standing for the moment leaning upon their weapons and scowling up in his face as he scolded. And, when he dashed the spurs into his reeking horse, they would throw up their rifles on their shoulders and hobble again after him. He was sometimes to be seen in the front, then in the rear, and then you would fall in with him again in the midst, dismounted and marching on foot, that the men might see he took an equal share in the toils which they were enduring. He had a mortal dislike, I remember, to a commissary. Many a time I have heard him storming at the neglect of those gentry, when the men were starving for rations and nothing but excuses forthcoming. "'Send a commissary to me,' he would roar. "'I will hang him if the provisions are not up this night.' Twice I remember he was in command of the Light Brigade. The second time he joined them, he made, I heard, something like these remarks, after they had been some little time in Spain. "'When I commanded you before,' he said, "'I know full well that you disliked me, for you fought me severe. "'This time... I'm glad to find there is a change in yourselves.